Shot Tower, the real NBA fantasy NBA hybrid podcast brought to you by Jalen Utsi, Kyle Stein, and me, Michael Kimball. Today, we are joined in the studio by John Krylin, the manager of Intrepid Trepanation, straight out of the Scorekeeper Fantasy League. He was a Bulls fan at the time of the game that we're going to watch today, and he is going to give us a lot of inside information, whether he knows it or not. So we continue to be in NBA suspension. We are taking you back to 1998, game six of the finals. The Bulls are up 3-2 over the Jazz. We all know what happens. I thought I would get us started with um, my hot take here. This is not a great basketball game. It's a classic game because... It's Jordan's last meaningful game, potentially, but this is not a great basketball game. Each team started four good basketball players and three healthy players. It's a mess out there. Pippen has a bad back and is in the locker room for a bunch of the time. Harper has the flu and looks sick. Howard Isley suffering suffering from vertigo. Hornacek is dragging his left leg up and down the court, and Stockton also has a back problem, which maybe led to his really wretched game here. What'd you guys think of this game? Well, I'll just hit someone with uh, some advanced stats for this game. Uh, Michael Jordan had a 55.1% usage rate in this game. Yeah. Um, and Carl Malone had a 36%, 36.2% usage rate in this game. And I think that pretty much sums up the badness of the game to a large degree. Uh, it's just, you know, Stockton dribble down the floor, go over to the left block, you know, take 10 seconds to enter the ball into the post. Malone gets it. He either scores, misses, or late in the game, he just got swarmed with double teams. On the other end, you know, Jordan eased his way into this game. He came in kind of slow, let other people get involved. So that was interesting to see. But once he started taking shots, he didn't stop taking shots, as that usage rate reflects. Yeah, and he didn't start or he didn't stop taking shots because they, they started out trying to put Pippen in the low post against Hornacek, but you know, it's, it's two injured guys going at each other. There didn't work out too well for anybody. Um, Harper's sick. He can't do anything down there. So it's Jordan. Kukoc is the only other player on the bulls and double figures for this game. Um, and yeah, Michael Jordan, 55% usage rate, 45 points, one rebound, one assist, four steals. Um, it was hilarious to me that Costas in the first quarter, I think it was, called it a relatively high scoring game because <laughs> at one point I was, he said, compared to the rest of the series, this was like the highest scoring game. And I was like, I don't want to hear anyone ever complaining about the like Pistons winning in 2004 or that Pistons Spurs series in 2005, because if this was fast, um, <laughs> I mean, what were the other games in this series? Well, and this this no. was not fast, though. There were not players moving quickly out there at all. I mean, Michael Jordan at times. Who else is quick on the floor? Brian Russell. This, um, this I'm game, running out of names already. Like, that's it. The, the, it. the players in this game had an aversion to transition offense. No one wanted to push <laughs> the ball up the floor and attack in transition. It, it was insane. Jordan would, like, get the ball, and he's like, nope. We're just going to walk this up. I'm going to get to my spot and I'm going to go to work. And 
that's that's what's gonna happen over and over and over again. Hornacek was the same way. Hornus, I mean, uh, Stockton was the same way. Stockton yeah. would have two guys running the wing uh, next to him. It would be like Antoine Carr and Hornacek or someone. And he's like, not nah, not gonna not gonna throw it to you for like a little short jumper. We're gonna we're gonna take this over here to give it to Carl Malone. I just took a look at it and um, a team broke 90 points only twice in the series. It yep. was the Bulls both times. They w- went to 93 points in game two, 96 points in game three. In game three, the Jazz had only 54 points and wow. all of the other games were in the 80s, actually really consistent, you know, sort of mid 80s, the whole series. And so they were actually right. It relatively was a higher scoring game. That well, yeah. So to be clear, this game ended eighty-seven, eighty-six. The Jazz scored thirty-seven points in the second half. The normal oh uh, scoring rate for this season, regular season, was ninety-five or ninety-six points a game. So this, 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 this. Costas I mean, is just wrong here. And in a certain way, I think he's trying to give it some faux gravitas as he does in his overblown intro. You know, it just um, it was striking to me. Some of this stuff does not hold up. And Bob Costas is one of those things. Well, he said um, he said relative to the rest of the series. And, you know, I was just saying he he's right about that, even if it is marginally only a couple marginally. Points. It was, I it mean, that's why I'm saying about points. faux, though. This is faux yeah. gravitas. He's taking some yeah. tiny thing and blowing it up into something. It's nothing. Well, it makes me think that the whole grandeur of the NBA past is faux, you know, because (laughs) this was supposed to be like its greatest moment. Michael Jordan going off at the end of this dance. And uh, it was really um, it it was kind of anticlimactic in a way. I mean, it it didn't seem to have the kind of stature that I expected. So, John, how do you remember this game from 98 and how do you see it now? Um, I remember it being this like overpowering iconic moment, um, but that kind of accumulated over the rest of the summer and the rest of the year. And I think, um, I mean, it's not that great of a last play. Let's face it. I mean, <laughs> right? Agree with it. Um, and I, I think it's just because it's the last dance, and it's all the weight of Jordan's career kind sure. of coalescing in this last. Um, dominant last stretch of play actually he's like the only yeah. who even touches the ball in the last minute and a half or so um almost I mean, on both ends of the floor because he got that steal right. on malone there in the last minute too i mean he was he, he, yeah jordan was unbelievable he 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 made the outcome of this game if we don't count the refs which we'll get to well yeah. unbelievable Everybody relative to a bunch of injured people and tired players because yeah <laughs> he was two for he was two for nine in the fourth quarter i thought it was no he mm-hmm. was i think he was uh what was he he was four for ten in the fourth quarter okay it's four about four. the last minute what was he but in the eight last for eight from minute? the line yeah, yeah, he was eight for eight from the line. That's true. Well, which is what we'll we'll get to later. <laughs> there was a stretch in the last minute and the steal in the last minute. I mean, that finish. Okay, let's let's talk about the steal because I feel like uh, you know I'm the youngest person on the call. I this was the first time I'd watched this game in full. Uh, I've seen like highlights of the Jordan steal, and everyone talks about it. And it, it is a great play. Jordan is very smartly just hangs 
Uh, he lets Hornacek cut through and doesn't follow him, and that's an extremely smart play. But the error is really John Stockton. Stockton, the error isn't Malone. Malone had no right. chance. He doesn't see him. Jordan doesn't even really go that far, so it's not like it's Malone's fault for holding the ball in the post too long. It's it, it's not his fault. It's Stockton. The whole play is in front of Stockton, and like yep. he's so robotic about getting the ball into the post to Malone. Like He had three turnovers in this game, and I think at least two of them came on that exact play where he just picked up his dribble, didn't do anything else, and just forced the ball into Malone and, and got a turnover. And in a similar fashion, like that, that's why it was so easy for Jordan to just hang out and know exactly what was going to happen. It was so predictable. And I'm just kind of like, Stockton is a great player, but he just had some sort of odd plays and just like this odd roboticness to his game in this one. Yeah, the Jazz are entirely predictable uh, in their gameplay. We see it over and over. The uh, Bulls are, too, to the extent that they're running the triangle offense here, and we see the same you know, trigger over and over and over again. But the difference is the triangle offense after that becomes wildly exponentially uncertain what will happen next. It's all dictated by defensive placement, player movement. The Jazz don't have that. Yeah, I mean, like uh, there, there isn't a whole lot of player movement at all. Like, um, I mean, it's it's just it's just odd. Like, Antoine Carr had a few nice moves, but like he didn't play exceptionally well. Um, I mean, I don't know. I kind of feel like Jerry Sloan just didn't do a great job. Like Stockton wasn't <laughs> yeah. playing that great. He goes back into the locker room to get his get uh what is a chiropractor to work on his back right um like Isley I thought played a lot better he um I feel like he was was, plus 12 he was giving he was giving Steve Kerr buckets there late in the in the fourth quarter and like making some nice passes um so I just yeah I I don't know it seemed like maybe Carr could have played more it seemed like Isley could have played more um, yeah. Like, I, they, maybe they should have just tried to outscore the Bulls because, like, I mean, what if you look at it this way, like Jordan is going to do what Jordan is going to do. He's either going to make the shot or he's not like what you do to stop him is only going to affect him so much. So maybe just try and outscore them, especially with Pippen struggling to, to play throughout the entire make game. Them run. Yeah. I found it fascinating that, you know, the big strategic move for this game was giving Antoine Carr more minutes. He's 36 years old at this point. He's averaged 16 minutes a game throughout the season, and he's getting 26 here in the game six of the finals, which to some extent tells you how weak the Jazz were as a team. They ran 10 deep in this game, but you know, they only started four real players. They had Adam Keefe at center in the same way the Bulls had Luke Longley in there for the jump balls at center. You, you know, it was really four true basketball players in in a, you know, in the way that we would think about it now. These guys were, there were a ton of really basic role players out there. And the fact that Antoine Carr got elevated <laughs> for this game was sort of laughable to me. Well, he had a really good showing in game five. He was five of six from the field with 12 points. I thought I was trying to look it up because I thought that he had had a stretch where 
it may have even been in that game where he took five shots in the second half and made all five shots. Um, it was yeah, it was yeah, that game yeah. five. And like, yeah, that's a good game, but nobody's going to shoot five for five every game. I mean, it just doesn't happen like that. That's not how shooting works. That's short run. He got a little lucky. I mean, Stockton was minus 13 in this game. Isley's plus 12. Keith is minus 11. And like Steve Kerr is coaching this game. I'm like a Steph Curry fan. And like Adam Keith starting the game and just sort of getting dominated early on and being minus 11 for the game is like, for me, shades of Steve Kerr playing Anderson Verjao and Festus Azili in the finals <laughs> and LeBron just roasts both, both of them. And I'm sitting on my yeah. couch screaming, like, what is he doing? Like anyone in front of a TV knew that was a bad idea. And in the same way, I think Keith is just... He's useless. I mean, he's not an offensive threat. He's not doing much on defense either. Right. It's just they had too many. They had too many um, liabilities on either on one end of the floor. Like Jordan and Pippen. Jordan specifically at times, who I think rested a lot on defense in this game. Um, he has his back completely turned to the three point line because no one can shoot it. Uh, like the closeout is like five feet. Like closing right. out from the the free throw line to Antoine Carr is two steps <laughs> like <laughs> right you know one of the things i wanted to talk about is so there's a moment in the fourth quarter where you can hear a fan yelling <laughs> call illegal defense and it seemed to have been a real sticking point for jazz fans and I was I was curious what you all thought. I mean, so the Bulls get called for I think it's four illegal defenses yep. in the first like, quor- first quarter and a half, and one of them was even on Jordan. And two of them, what? Two of them were on Jordan then. Okay, and so I was wondering, did you get the sense that there was a lot of illegal defense playing? Was this a Bulls strategy where they yes. were basically like, we're going to play illegal defense every play? It's going to give us an advantage, but they can't. P- call it every play and so yeah we can see it in the gameplay they were hedging that call the whole time and they accepted those early illegal defense calls as part of their strategy i think and then they stopped calling them they yeah. were still there yeah i agree i i noticed that like when the fans said that i was like huh yeah he's right like they could have called this nearly like every time down the floor and i yep. think it goes to what i was just saying that like they knew that they they could ignore these players and so th- there was a huge benefit to mucking up the the driving lines i think Carl Malone at one point started a drive towards the basket three bulls ran at him like like not like a, a slide like a closeout like an intelligent close they just ran at him they just sprinted at him and it, because they, they didn't need to worry about anything else behind them like it, it was truly it was truly insane to see yeah yeah well one of the other things that stuck out to me and we see this all throughout the 90s in games is just how tough how physical this game was um the you know but besides the illegal defense calls and the text that led to um there are a lot of what today would be you know fouls that just are not being called <laughs> at all yeah. in this game uh wh- one of the more obvious places that happen malone and rodman get locked up uh i think it's a third quarter um they trip each other repeatedly three times. They would be out of the game today, but that's not what happened there. Uh, John, I know you have a take on this. Oh, yeah. Um, and it stems from uh, Costas's call on that. So when they get tangled up and uh, Rodman gets teed up, um, 
he notes that uh, Carl Malone and Rodman are, and I'm quoting here, regrettably scheduled to wrestle in one of those bogus <laughs> events. And the event in question, they don't really uh, mention it, though the announcers knew about this during the finals. I think it was mentioned at the beginning of game four. Um, but later that summer, um, early July, Rodman and Malone featured in the main event at a WCW pay-per-view event. And uh, this kind of gets to something that had been in the works um, behind the scenes during the NBA Finals. So after Game 3, actually, Rodman skipped an NBA-mandated media session on, on the off day to instead fly off to Auburn Hills, Michigan, where he would appear on WCW's Monday Nitro, which was those who don't know wrestling at the time the competitor to wwf monday night raw and he went on this explicitly to start a feud with carl malone so rodman had some history with the wwe having appeared in i'm not sure if it was just on tv or pay-per-view in uh the previous couple of years and what the wcw had set up was a tag team match between malone and Rodman for later in the summer, about a month after the finals ended. Um, so this was the big uh, main event for the pay-per-view. And uh, the match pitted Rodman and Hulk Hogan against Carl uh, Malone and Diamond Dallas Page. Now, what's interesting about this for Malone's involvement is he you know, didn't have the reputation that Rodman did for um, all these off-the-court theatrics. And uh, he actually got involved when by chance he met Diamond Dallas Page at a Jazz Rockets game earlier in the 1997-98 season. Uh, Diamond Dallas Page was sitting courtside or something and Malone started flashing him the diamond cutter finishing move uh, sign with his hands. And so the two of them ended up meeting in New York um, later that year and talking about wrestling and Malone revealed that when he was a kid, he didn't actually want to be a basketball player. He wanted to be a pro wrestler. So um, <laughs> He did look like he was having more fun at the wrestling match than the basketball game. Yeah. Th that. Um, so I sent you guys like a four-minute clip of a much longer match. I think the whole thing ran about 25 minutes. Um, but that's not online. Yeah, but Malone's really into it. He's body slamming everybody. He executes <laughs> a couple of finishing moves on people, including the ref at the end. Yeah. Um, Rodman, of course, is really into it. But yeah, um, it's, this gets to the sort of off-court antics that the Bulls tolerated from Rodman knowingly. And I, I don't know if this is just a testament to Phil Jackson's coaching that he knew how long of a leash to give one of his players. Um, he said that during the regular season, if this had happened, uh, Rodman would have been no question suspended. Um, but right. Yeah. Is this actually come? It hasn't aired yet, but this does come up in the Last Dance doc. It's episode three or four, and there was a point mid-season during this 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 basketball ninety-seven ninety-eight season. Um, Pippen has been out through the whole early part of the season. Finally, comes back. Rodman's been carrying a lot of the load, uh, you know, just as the next star up, so to speak, and is just wiped out comes to Phil Jackson and asks him for time off. He wants a break. And he eventually negotiates 48 hours in Vegas 
and he'll then he'll return to the team. He just gets to leave, do whatever he wants. Uh, I can't remember what that turned into. It was at least four or five days, maybe longer, that he's away. But they do talk about it pretty explicitly. Michael does too. Michael approved um, Rodman leaving for that period of time while also acknowledging that Rodman was not going to come back after those two days, that it was going to be much longer. And so this was a decision made at that level. Jackson and and Michael Jordan were the two that approved it. Um, so I don't know if he would have been suspended. They like to say that there, but they certainly didn't do it then. They knew they needed Dennis and they knew they needed to give him room to be himself. Yeah, I think um, this is I, this has me thinking about just like this collection of talent and personalities and people on this team between Phil Jackson, Jerry Krause, Michael Jordan, Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen, and just all the ways in which they like clashed and also worked together extremely well. And I think Phil is was truly the perfect person to uh, make it all coalesce because you know. In the Last Dance doc in the first two episodes, they they asked Phil about his attitude towards Scottie Pippen sort of sitting out like, no, I want my I want to be paid more. I've been underpaid for a long time. I'm going to get this injury, this surgery, this uh, was ankle surgery or something taken care of on company time, so to speak. He didn't use those words. Those were Shaq's words. But, you know, he, he did essentially the same thing. And. In the dock, Phil's like, nope, that's what that's what Pippen felt he, he needed to do to get his proper appreciation and respect. And I understood that. And I just needed to make sure the rest of the team got through it all. And I mean, I think not only that, you know, so you have that example, you have the Rodman example. But also in watching this game, I couldn't help but feel like it was Michael Jordan and the Bulls playing the Utah Jazz, not really yeah. the Bulls playing the Utah Jazz. Like, does Jordan talk to his teammates for most of the game? I don't see him talking to them very much. I don't see him interacting with them. I mean, well, he told his family to stay home. I think maybe he was just like, he closed off the entire world. You know, at the end of the game, they're given, they have the trophy ceremony and he, he first has to acknowledge his family. And then he says, because I told them to stay home. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's and I think he's just such an individual talent, obviously, like his statistics and all the accolades and everything he's done, uh, you know, speak to that. But I think that individualism is like, you know, has a other side of it, which is much thornier, which I think the doc, the documentary will bring about. But you can actually see it in the way that the game is being played and the way that they interact with. Uh, all of his teammates interact with him at the end. You can see Steve Kerr like hugging him and saying like, uh, you're unbelievable. Like you're, you're unbelievable, but it's like, he says words we can't say on this podcast. I I, I caught that. (laughs) Exactly. But it's like, he's like, I'm so glad I got to play with this guy and this guy won a championship for me. It's almost less than like we won, you know, like uh, (laughs) it's a, it's a, it's a weird thing. And there, there's one point where, Jordan breaks a playoff and goes isolation in the middle of the floor and misses like a, a fadeaway jumper that was heavily contested. And like Kerr is like trying to tell him to run the play. And once Jordan waves him off, you can see, you can physically see Kerr just kind of sulk and like walk towards the corner. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. So um, John, I think we cut away from the wrestling match before you um, wrapped up. What I really appreciated about watching that clip was just how strong Carl Malone is. And you can see how that strength translates onto the court. Like he was 
just bullying guys down low and um, just seeing him pick up other 250 pound guys and throw them around in the ring um, lets you appreciate that more. What's also interesting about the match is the way it parallels the outcome of the finals. Like clearly Malone is uh, of these two, the better uh, wrestler as he was the better player. And he played just as he played well in the finals, both years against the Bulls. Um, he came up short for reasons, not really his fault. Um, and so what you can tell from the match against Hulk Hogan, like he and Diamond Dallas Page are kicking their butts, but there's some shenanigans with the ref. Um, he ends up losing the match and then kind of riffing off uh, his reputation. Well, and alone is it does not go out gracefully. <laughs> <laughs> he does not go out gracefully. And if uh, I, I don't quite know how to say this, if professional wrestling of that sort could be. Uh, measured in terms of who should and shouldn't win, I think it would easily it would be easy enough to say based on the clip we watched that Malone and Diamond Dallas Page should have won, but oh, that's and that's that's taken away from Karl Malone yet again as Game Six is in a sense uh, by by how that's um, finish at the end and Malone, much to his credit, I suppose maybe he found some sort of catharsis in this, but he drops the ref at the end of the match. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm curious. Maybe John or someone can speak to this. What was the attitude towards Carl Malone? Um, you know, when he was active in the league, like I feel like anytime Carl Malone is mentioned on Twitter now everyone comes out of the woodworks to say that they disliked him and they couldn't stand him uh, in the present and now continuing into now. Uh, I don't remember. I think it was easy reputation, but he was um, like regarded as like a great player who just never kind of got his shot, a fair shot at a title. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, he was absolutely recognized as a great player at the time, you know, a perennial 2010 guy, et cetera, et cetera, all of that. But it was also widely known that like Michael Jordan, Carl Malone was kind of a jerk. Like that, that was part of it. And I think it was easier to be a jerk back then. That was a bigger part of sports than it is today. Um, so like, that was just a fully accepted part of that. That was part of the game in a sense. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, a very different way of looking at it today. I, I don't think Malone would have, I don't think that part of his reputation or Jordan's either would, would stand up the way it did back then. Um, something that caught me in this game is just like how impressive Malone was as a player. Like this gets to the wrestling a bit, but that, well, that just shows how strong he was. Yeah. Um, I mean, like his arms are tree trunks essentially. And, um, but not only that he can bully guys down low, he has touched on shots from 15 to 18 feet out. Um, he's a pretty decent free throw shooter. I mean, I think somebody yep. like that in today's game, he would have, been something like a point power forward because he could pass well yeah yeah Yeah. i mean he's not i mean i was struck by that as well so i didn't i haven't really watched him that much and like he's taking fadeaways and turnaround jumpers and they're they're real jumpers you know these aren't half hooks or hook shots he's taking you know pivot jumper like it's it's interesting Mm -hmm. to see the skill in that 
It was sort of a beautiful shot that mid, you know, that 15, 17 footer that Malone had. It looked really good. There are other times in this game where Malone uh, also looked very good. Early on, um, some of the few minutes Luke Longley plays, you know, he, he uses a spin move on Longley on the baseline, and Malone just looks incredibly fast until I realized and remembered how slow Luke Longley is. Like he, he, Luke Longley seemed like, I don't even know what to say here. He seemed like a cardboard refrigerator box that was empty and they just set it on the low block and anybody could go around it. You know, I wanted to go back to talking about the physicality of the game because I know you guys have your issues with Isaiah's, uh, color commentary on, <laughs> on this game, but I thought he had a good point when he was talking about how, um, how just energy draining it is to constantly be banging and how different that is from like the aerobic work of running up and down the floor and why that was so, you know, so hard on Michael Jordan. And I also wanted to think about that in relation because like he, he, Isaiah praises MJ throughout the second half for saving up his energy for offense, like not playing defense and saving up his energy to be there when they needed him to score and I thought like first of all just because you know LeBron is always compared you know to MJ and I just thought if someone ever gets the idea that LeBron is taking a possession off on defense it's the greatest scandal and I, I just wondered what you all thought of um, well, maybe, the, maybe our, yeah, go ahead. It, well, I think it's the greatest scandal because MJ always had the reputation of never, ever, ever, ever say it as many times as you want doing that. And here we hear it called out. That isn't the way it's told now. You know, he was the guy who never took a playoff. He's playing in a charity game and, and, you know, blocking every shot around. Uh, it's so it was surprising to hear it that it was actually happening here. We never see it though, do we? I think we do. Yeah, he's okay. He's he's just standing around. I mean, it's it's not just him. Like it's the nature of, of the way the game is being played then that like if you're off ball, uh you you don't need to do much, especially if you're playing the Jazz who are just posting up Carl Malone and there isn't a lot of like back cutting on the weak side or whatever. <laughs> sure, like, sure. Jordan's just standing there if he's on the weak side waiting for someone, maybe he's going to go double team Malone or go uh, like get into rotation if someone else goes to double team alone, but mostly he can just stand around. He's guarding Jeff Hornacek and his tactic basically is to swipe down at the ball every time Jeff Hornacek puts it on the floor because he's got a lot of length on Hornacek. So even if Hornacek has more energy and can get by him, he can potentially block the shot after he gets by him or just swipe it away. So he did that a number of times to Hornacek, but it wasn't, it wasn't great defense. There's no reason Jeff Hornacek should ever get by Michael Jordan if he was actually playing great defense. So, I mean, I think, right. I think it was real, but I, I do think that like, I think for people, that's a great who, point too, because it goes back to this whole idea that this is a flaw in the Jazz's game plan. Like they could have made Jordan work harder on defense and maybe he wouldn't have had enough on the offensive end to win the way that he did. Um, Okay, yeah. so let's let, let's talk about that win, and um, there are possibly air quotes here because, as we know, the Utah Jazz fans do not think the Chicago Bulls won this game. 
there were two big plays. The one they normally point to is Isley's three-pointer that's called a shot clock violation. There was another uh, bucket later on that should have been a shot clock violation from Ron Harper, a two-pointer, and it wasn't. Um, So it counted. That's a five-point swing for the Bulls. Obviously, that would have changed the outcome of this game. Uh, It's it's Carl Malone losing um, wrongly again, as he did in the wrestling match. Uh, any any thoughts on that, Kyle? I'm 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 hoping you want to pick up the referees and conspiracy theories bit here, possibly. Yeah, yeah there are a lot of different directions to go with this, and it, it's as far as I could tell, it's written about everywhere. The um, the Deseret News writes about it in June 1998, like right away, and I they they run a headline. Um, a headline that says cry all you want, but NBA's deaf. And so you can tell, you know, this, this is the major newspaper in the Salt Lake city area. And they are, you know, making no bones about it. They are completely out there, you know, critiquing the NBA. And, um, and I found so many jazz fan blogs jazz journalistic sources over the last 22 years that make this case. I mean, it always centers on the same plays, um, but you can tell that like, it just hasn't even gone away for people. Like the, the, uh, these stories that I'm reading are coming from like the last five years. And so I thought it might be worthwhile to just go into the plays in this, in like some depth and like um, understand like what, what their gripe is. And so at the 10 minute mark in the second quarter, Jazz are up 28 to 24. The Jazz get the ball after a pretty nice assist by Rodman. Howard Isley takes the inbound uh, and he takes it up the left side, gets into the offense late, dropping the ball down low to Carr um, with about eight seconds left to go on the shot clock. Carr tries to back down Rodman with no luck and kicks it out to Shandon Anderson on the opposite side near the end of the coach's box. But the ball careens off Anderson's outstretched hand. Isley gets it back, chases it down near uh, the sideline, and shot clock is expiring. He launches a desperation three and hits it. Crowd goes wild, um, and immediately Dick Bavetta calls it off. But Costas is like on it immediately and says that it was the wrong call. They go to replay. They show the second by second. um, And we see that the ball is out of his hands with, you know, one second left on the the clock. Um, And that's play one. And I know, Jalen, you were you you were interested in talking about the. yeah, the the, Ron the, Harper, the the Ron Harper bucket. Yeah, yeah. The, the Ron Harper version of the same sort of play, um, and that is in the fourth quarter. Uh, Ron Harper ties the game at seventy nine with this running, one legged, leaning uh, jump shot, which he takes in desperation because they're trying to beat the shot clock, which happens to rattle in. Uh, but w- what we see, uh, and this is at the 337 mark of the fourth quarter, what we see is that the shot is still in his hands when uh, when the shot clock expires. So the Jazz not only get points taken off, but then the, you know points are sort of added that shouldn't be uh, in that sort of situation. And the possession was just terrible, as you as you described before. Like both 
uh, Jordan and Pippen are trying to post up, but neither one of them is really on the block. They're both just kind of in the middle of the lane, and the spacing is terrible. They're passing it around. Kukoc, I think, uh, attempts to drive and is cut off, and that's when he swings it to Harper, who makes the shot. And so just in those two plays, you see we have a five-point swing, which could, uh, in a one-point game, you you would think, <laughs> if I know yeah. anything about math, uh, would it? <laughs> would mean that they would win the game. And and I think, A, uh, as I said, I'm very happy to poke holes in the, uh, the Michael Jordan mythology. So I'm very much here for all the conspiracy theories. But B, I think this goes to the more realistic point that the Jazz had a lot of opportunities to win this game. And for as much as Michael Jordan and the Bulls won this game, the Jazz in a lot of ways lost this game. So um, Carl Malone got hot down the stretch and knocked down some shots um, and... John Stockton himself made a couple shots late in the game, but he didn't do very much the rest of the game. And there were a couple plays. Hornacek gets a, uh, the the Jazz get a stop. Hornacek tries to throw it ahead to Brian Russell. Uh, Jordan steals it back. You know that's a wasted possession right there. Um, this is all in the fourth quarter. This is uh, with two two minutes and fifty six uh, seconds left in the clock. Another example is uh, Byron Russell. Uh, Brian Russell gets an offensive rebound. He's underneath the basket. He's sort of like up against the sideline. But instead of like reverse pivoting and going back out to the three-point line, he tries to go under the basket around the other way. He gets triple teamed. He's falling out of bounds, throws it throws it into a bunch of bulls. They pick it up, go the other way. That's another turnover where they could have milked the clock and got points there. So there were like a number of opportunities that uh, the Jazz had to really win this game. Yeah, the ones you just named, the ones we talked about earlier, you know, Antoine Carr could have played more, Keith could have played less, Isley should have played more. You know, they lost on the bench too, both yeah. the coaching and the bench players. So, um, yeah, it, this was not a great game for the Utah Jazz. Um, and I Kyle, think, yeah, and I go think, ahead, Jay. Uh, no, I was just going to say along the point you said they lost on the bench, and we talked a little bit about uh, Jerry Sloan's failings, but uh, another way in which I saw sort of Phil Jackson's genius, like I feel like Phil Jackson on the Lakers, I I feel like was successful and everything, but I feel like this was really where Phil Jackson's genius showed up, and I think it was Judd Bushler comes in the game and knocks down <laughs> a couple shots. Like yeah. it was like It was like the zen had worked, right? Every single player that Phil Jackson put in the game – he had confidence in, he trusted in, and whatever he did to cultivate that, it showed in their play. Like, they didn't miss a beat. They had a system. They ran the system. The players came in. Uh, you know, the talent dropped off significantly, but the system stayed the same. They did what they could. They got open looks. They knocked them down. And I feel like there is less of that to some degree uh, on the jazz side of the ball. Um, and then also in a related fashion, like, I feel like you can see the origins of, uh, to jump it forward, you can see the origins of, like, you know, Kobe and Shaq in the triangle offense. And you can also see some of the same sorts of things that the Warriors themselves did. You know, there's a bunch of split cuts that they're running. These triangle principles, you know, back cut if you're overplayed, you know, these right. cross screens. Um, so, yeah, I, I was just attuned to that because Steve Kerr is actually playing in the game. It's, it's interesting that you called out that Kerr played in this game because he did, in fact, play 24 minutes, but his line is relatively bereft. He has zero points, zero rebounds, three assists, one steal. He mostly stood in the corner. 
But those guys off the bench, as you rightly pointed out, Jalen, they all knew the triangle offense. They all knew the system. They all played hard no defense. So even though the lines on the bench besides Rodman are really, really empty, um, 11 bench points total for the Bulls, seven from Rodman, um, it, it, yeah, so, um, and I think Kerr's benefit is in spacing. Like there were, yes. they were, they were doing like offense for defense switches between Harper and Kerr. So anytime they needed the defense, Harper would be in the game. Anytime they needed offense, Kerr would be in the game. Um, and well, Kerr, they, Kerr they nearly that. played the same amount of minutes. Harper played 28, Kerr played 24. But you could see like when Jordan got going, I think was a little bit in starting in the, let's see, he was three for eight in the first quarter. He was six of 11 in the second quarter. That was when he started getting going. And that was when Kerr was in the game. Yeah. And they, they, they couldn't shrink the floor as much because Kerr was out there and the threat exactly. of his shooting helped open up things for Jordan and helped him get his mid-range game going. Yeah. When they were running that sideline triangle, it was Steve Kerr in the corner and that as you rightly pointed out, kept it wide open. When Harper was there, it just wasn't the case, and and the Jazz could collapse the spacing. Speaking of Steve Kerr, um, we tend to think of him as this elite three-point shooter, um, but the main three-point shooter in this game, of all people, was Michael Jordan, and maybe this is just a a bit of trivia on the side. He went three for seven from downtown. Um, I was checking on basketball reference, and the three three-pointers made matched his high for the entire 1997-98 season, and his seven attempts was the most of the season, playoffs and regular season combined. I, I think this ties in a little bit to the um, physical toll that like this grinding down low took, and um, rather than say that Jordan might have taken some plays off on defense, I wonder if he settled for threes. So uh, there are a couple other uh, notes that we have here. One, one of them, um, uh, the a big reporter at the time is somebody I've had to listen to way too much the last couple of decades, Skip Bayless. Uh, does anybody want to talk about why we still have to listen to Skip Bayless? I do. I'll, <laughs> I'll say something. Uh, my first thought when – so Costas – quote skip bayless in the fourth quarter so bayless is a uh, a reporter for the chicago tribune at the time and he has a story that comes out earlier in the series that calls um jordan that rarest of athlete a supremely talented overachiever and my reaction to that was basically just ugh ugh <laughs> ugh that that's just of of course, this is what Skip Bayless said. Um, and uh, it was interesting for me to think that Bayless is to Michael Jordan what Brian Windhurst is to LeBron. They basically got their careers started um, by writing the, you know, the local um, opinion um, you know, sort of sports pages um, about the big NBA phenomenon at the time and used it to break into um, a much, you know, bigger national role um, in sports media. Um, and my first thought was, oh, we could have had someone more like Brian Windhorse and less like Skip Bayless. 
we could have missed opportunity. But then my other thought was somewhere in there, is there a way that the reporter starts to mirror the personality of the player? Because there are <laughs> these ways that like Skip Bayless is like the perfect MJ Homer, you know, like he, he will only accept winning at any cost, you know? Right. And, and he doesn't care how strident and how, uh, I think, you know, unbearable he has to be in order to get the biggest audience that he can and, you know, to pump the greatest player in his mind ever. Yeah. It's, um, it, it, I, I mean, I, I was fine with it back uh, then. Um, Bayless only became sort of unwatchable, unlistenable, unreadable after that, I think. Um, so, yeah. Uh, one of the other things we should talk about, and this comes up in the doc um, that's running right now, Last Dance, uh, the Alan Parsons Project has the intro music for the Chicago Bulls. That's where the song comes from. The song is called Serious. It started there. It's become an entirely different thing today. Uh, John, do you remember that song when they, they, they first started using that? And did, did that create any sort of feeling for you back then? You know, any of that stuff? Um, to hear Serious for me... Um... Even now, even if I, as I did in prep for the podcast, pull it up on Spotify, um, still gives me goosebumps because it evokes all the crowd noise and the voice of Ray Clay, the Bulls public address announcer, um, all of which are synonymous with those Michael Jordan teams, right? Um, I also am probably colored by having heard um, those intros at the stadium. I went to two or three games during the championship run when I was a kid. And the thing I remember is that uh, when Ray Clay says from North Carolina uh, at guard, six, six, Michael Jordan, and whatever he says, those words um, that you can barely hear it at all. It is just deafening inside the stadium. Um, you can actually hear those words on TV, but you can't, they're not really audible live. And the TV does not do justice to just how much everybody is roaring in the stadium. And that's, for me, the one thing I really remember about going to those games more than the play itself. Yeah, I was really interested in th that song. And I was, I was especially because I, I wondered where it fit in historically with the Pistons using the final countdown in the Bad Boys era. And... Um, so I did a little bit of reading and I, I found out that the Bulls are widely credited with creating, um, the modern NBA introduction, um, you know, and changing the introductions for the league in general and for actually all of sports. Um, they were the first to use that dim the house lights put a spotlight on the players, dramatic music, booming PA. And now the starting lineup from your Chicago Bulls, you know, that thing that we're like all yeah. so used to hearing now. Um, 
And there's a nice oral history on The Ringer um, where Bulls announcer Tommy Edwards, who was on the team from 1993, I'm sorry, 1983 to 1990, and again from 2006 to the present, recounts his efforts to spice up the pregame routine for the franchise, um, which at the time, you know, this is... Um, Jordan comes as you get, you get in the documentary. He comes into a basically failing franchise where they right. have empty seats there every night, and so Edwards is trying to do anything that can like make their, um, you know, make their product more interesting to fans. Right. Um, and he he never places the exact date for when they started using Sirius. Um, but um, he tells a story about going to a movie theater and hearing it play before the movie and being like, oh, I know that song. I know what that song is. That That's serious by the Alan Parsons Project. Um, and he's like, I think that that might, be our, might work for our introduction. Um, he had been using Michael Jackson's Thriller at first. Right. Um, and... And he makes it seem sound like the that that he like uses Michael Jackson Jackson's Thriller and then goes over to Sirius in like relatively short order, um, but I did some searching around um, for um, games and I noticed that. Um, they used Thriller for a lot longer than what that Ringer article would suggest. Um, I found an example, um, an early example from October 26, 1984, when the Bulls are playing against the Bullets. Um, and I found another from February 12, 1985, which is Jordan's 49-point game against the Pistons. And then... It's pretty hard to make out on the broadcast, but I think you can tell by the drum beat, specifically the kick drum, that they're still using Thriller in the 1986 playoffs. Um, I, the example that I found was Game 3. This is against the Celtics. Um, game 3 back in Chicago after Jordan's famous 63-point performance in Game 2. So that suggests to me that they were using it into the 85-86 season and into the playoffs. Um, right. By April 16, 1987, though, which is the only intervening video that I could find, um, they're using Sirius in Jordan's 61-point game. This is a regular season game um, against the Hawks. And uh, I did find out that the Pistons were copycats, uh, that they took the pregame routine from the Bulls. And the best example that I could find from this was that when the Pistons played the Bulls, this is back when they were playing at the Pontiac Silverdome um, in 1987, March 4th of that year, they used the Alan Parsons Project song, the turn of a friendly card um, uh, from the band's 1980 album of the same name. Um, and that, you know, using another Alan Parsons project song before <laughs> yeah. they settle That's on weak. The, the final countdown <laughs> um, later that year really suggests that they were like, really, they were trying to find something that would make them, um, you know, as as much of a spectacle as the bulls were, but I still have to give them some credit because if, you know, if you listen to the intro in this game that we watch, the jazz just use serious. They use the same song well, that the well, bulls right. use. Everybody. And everyone everybody started using it. So at least yeah. the Pistons went out and everybody became something. copycat. Yeah. Well, and, 
And so I find it fascinating because the final countdown does just because I grew up with it and those Pistons championships, it does resonate for me still when I hear all of those horns come in, all of that stuff. What are your opinions about Jordan as obviously not as a player, like his, his resume as a player is, you know, Teflon. There's nothing nothing greater than that, but I mean, uh, and not even necessarily as a person, like outside of the context of the sport. I mean, in the sport, I mean like the verbal abuse of teammates. I mean, the, the extremely, um, you know, the intense competitiveness, the willingness to like, uh, um, like cheat Scotty Pippen out of money on bets by like, getting to the arena earlier and see who's going to win, uh, you know, the version of a hot dog race, you know, or, or something like that. Like he's, he's just known for this, uh, level yeah. of competitiveness that I think is like to some degree necessary to be a great athlete, but to the degree that we lionize it, I think I'm uncomfortable with. And I think one of the reasons that I liked Steph Curry is because he he didn't uh, put forth this attitude that I have to be a jerk to everyone else, including my teammates, in order to be great at the sport. Um, yeah. I think, well, it's interesting because I think this is coming out of an old tradition where competitors hated the people they were competing against. And I think Michael Jordan's... But, but I don't even think that's true because, like, Jordan is playing... He's playing, you know, we watched the the Celtics back in the day and he's playing golf with Ainge, you know? he true. in his In his Hall of Fame speech, he's calling out uh, Pat Riley for saying, uh, Oakley said, I can't hang out with you before the game because that's Riley's rule. And he, and yeah. Jordan is like, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to kick your ass. But, like... Yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to know. say there's a historical context where this was accepted that it was ex- it, and there were players that very much felt that way we see it in a small way with Giannis today he's not so into the you know playing with other people working with out with other people during the off season he's doing it on his own at with the bucks um so it was a yeah. different context and but i feel the same way as you do that it, it's hard to take today and it's something um, I grew up with, I saw it all the time with the teams I played on, but it's not something I would want to be a part of now. Think about it in this term, like Michael Jordan's verbal abuse of his teammates and in the case of Steve Kerr, physical abuse is more accepted uh, than Kevin Durant joining a team that had already won <laughs> a championship or than Kevin, yeah. Kevin Durant's like saying like, you know, I'm sensitive or like I care about what random people on the internet say about me. Right. And I think in both in both situations, there's like an incongruousness to like their belief systems uh, aligning with reality, right? Like Jordan yeah. made up uh, by all accounts, made up the idea that he was froze out of the all-star game by George Gervin, Isaiah Thomas, and I think maybe Magic or someone else. And and in the same way that like it shouldn't matter what fans on the internet think about Kevin Durant to him like that that's right. really an issue but it's also just like why is the why is the more destructive one more acceptable i actually don't necessarily think that it is more acceptable i think that michael jordan didn't play in an era of social media and so there wasn't the same kind of scrutiny his entire legacy was written by professional journalists that he wasn't written up by bloggers and people tweeting and you know facebooking and any of these things um there weren't as many people 
weighing in on the conversation. And in, because of that, it was more curated. And I think it's one of the reasons why his legacy is so powerful today. It's because, you know, when you go back and you watch the game, it doesn't seem to me to, to match exactly. He's the fallible. Yeah. It doesn't match the stature that we have, you know, come to associate with this, this, you know, in all likelihood, impossible figure. Yeah, and I, I think you're totally right. Like, I think you're absolutely right. That's spot on. And the same can be said of 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 Kobe, who's the person everyone says came closest to repeating everything he did. Um, Kobe's legacy is also was highly curated. He he was cagey. He kept a lot of things from the media. Um, and you know, rest in peace, obviously. But this is just this is just a fact. Um, and I think you know, I think it's true that it seems like. But it's it does seem like people want that fans at least want to be sort of lied to almost they want myth they want yeah. they want the myth right they don't want people to be exactly like them and as athletes you know they don't want the athletes to seem too human almost every um, medium has its machinery of myth I mean even LeBron has myth oh totally totally I mean like yeah LeBron went back to Miami to I mean back to Cleveland to bring a championship to Cleveland no he went back to Cleveland because Dwayne Wade's knees were shot and they had Kyrie Irving and he knew they could get Kevin Love that's why he went and back he to also Cleveland. played it brilliantly I remember when he was going back to Cleveland checking Twitter like every two minutes like wait you know like there was you, you had an idea that something was happening and yeah you, just, you were like you know, refresh, refresh, refresh. Yeah. And, and I'm, and I'm not trying to give uh, LeBron a pass in terms of myth making or anything like that. But I, but I guess my counter would be that like these, the professional journalists who made Kobe, they, I mean, who made Jordan, um, I don't know. It just seems like it's still being accepted. And I guess we can't go back in time and we can't go back to that moment, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of people coming out saying like, there was anything wrong with this, right? And Seth Partnow on Twitter has said basically like this is like a a like what is it a causation equals what it, what is the formula? Um, correlation does correlation, not equal causation. Yeah, correlation does not equal causation. Like MJ was a monster because he was a monster at the sport of basketball. He just so happened to also be a jerk. Like uh, <laughs> right. I don't I don't know if the jerkiness is what made him great. Like, like, I mean, he was the greatest player who isn't a jerk. He was like the most athletic player who was in the league at the time. Like, no one could compare to him as an athlete early on in his career. Right. Are there great players who aren't jerks? I mean, Tim Duncan. Okay. Yeah, no, I think there are some. We can name some of them. I don't think LeBron Does Bill Russell qualify? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'd put him there. I'd put Kareem there to some extent. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't think LeBron is a jerk. Not in the same yeah. way that like. Yeah, I hear you. Kobe and Jordan. Oh, he, no, he, he absolutely has, he has things, but not not nearly to this. Well, there's less verbal abuse and more shutting out. That would yeah. be the LeBron version, which yeah. you know, still not great, but better than the other, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, and and i don't know sports are not a normal work environment <laughs> they are not. We, we should say that but i mean and I, yeah like so it's difficult to see to pinpoint where the line is between you have to be this crazy to like 
risk your your life and limb to like win a stupid trophy that's you know that you barely get to keep and you'll probably sell one day i think you bring up a really important point jalen because it this is at heart to some extent the fundamental attribution error are we attributing his behavior to the situation he is in competing for a championship at the highest level or are we saying this is what this person is all the time and the fundamental attribution error, we, uh, the, the, the problem with it in general as a social psychological concept is that people attribute this to the personality more so than the situation. I think we have to look at the situation and I think we have to look at the historical context. We, you know, they didn't have, this conversation that we're having now could not have happened then. It's yeah. also, you know, one of the reasons we're, watching this game is because of the documentary and the documentary sheds really interesting light on this. My, the, the biggest surprise I had watching the first two episodes was how likable MJ was. And, and, and of course it's, it's why do you think? And it's, first of all, it's like, of course, right. Because like everyone loved MJ in the eighties, but he was also, he was so, he was so humble and so driven and so like, he he was so um, like still raw and on the rise and still trying, you know. Right. And and you and you really like rooted for him. And um, and did you see any humbleness in those first two episodes of the doc? I thought so. I mean, I thought in his time at UNC and in his like rookie season, there was like there was a real. I met um, him now, though. Yeah, I think oh, there was in the past. Yeah. You mean from like the '98 season? But him now talking about looking back. Do you see any humbleness now? I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, playing at that level for that long, maybe it's a you know um, devil's bargain. You know, kind uh, of where yeah. like you. You get the championships, but it will forever change you. Yeah, what cost? And, and he'll never be that UNC, you know, Michael yeah. again. That was gone. Yeah, that was definitely gone. Yeah, Michael, before we close, I feel like I wanted to say, I think you made an excellent point that, like, the situation matters. And, I mean, the first two episodes of the doc are basically bash Jerry Krause uh, episodes. <laughs> right. Uh, but, like, we don't give him enough credit for, you know, putting the team together, drafting yeah. Scotty, trading up to, what did he trade up for Scotty Pippen, drafted coach in the second round, you know, got rid of Oakley, all these things that helped bring the dynasty together. Even he Phil, needed another coach, right? Yeah. yeah he hit even <laughs> Phil, who he feuded with, um, he brought him in and Phil was the guy. And he so I mean, was right for the team. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think for all his flaws and maybe that's really the takeaway is just that like, you know, this is a situation where your greatest strength can also be your greatest weakness. And all these people are flawed, you know, from from Rodman to Pippen to Jordan to Krause. Um, But I think the situation, as you pointed out, really matters. Like the reason that like no one's myth can be what Jordan's myth is, is because Jordan exists. Um, And the reason (laughs) that Jordan's myth got to exist the way that it did is because he won. But part of the reason that he won is because he had Scottie Pippen by his (laughs) side and he had Jerry Krause putting a team together. And, you know, it just wasn't common for guys to leave teams like that now. But like, yeah, I mean, uh, it'll be interesting to see as the league moves forward right now. I mean, things can change. Obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Who knows? Maybe the collective bargaining agreement is upended soon. But like right now, they're short contracts. You know, guys aren't sticking around on teams for a very long time. Like, 
it doesn't seem like we'll see someone who will just like rival that level of dominance in the game just because the players are so good all across the league um, or because they're leaving their team so quickly, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, I feel like there's just a much higher level of play from team to team now than we saw back then. Back then, there were some good teams, but nobody would really consider making a serious run. Back and, and but now we look at. I, I I just feel like more teams can compete now as we're pl- as the game is being played at a higher level. Yeah, absolutely. So, and what, I also wanted to bring up uh, the, the the Kraus point and the Pippin point. Um, one of the things I like about the doc is that it's giving a lot more nuance and balance to some of those mythic stories, both good and bad. And so there's um, uh, Scotty Pippen gets his due uh, further on in the doc, episode three or four. Jerry Krause, they actually give him some more credit too. Um, so they do try to round out that whole story much better than than you know as it was presented to us, curated for us back in the day. That's good. So I think that is it for the Shot Tower pod. We are turning off the phantom power. Cheers. Yeah, that's my take. I mean, I see him more as like a Walter White type. Like if you rewatch Breaking Bad, like the the story people like to say is that it, Walter White is actually some decent family man. No, he's a he's a total narcissist, ego driven from the very first episode, um, and the show just draws out more and more what has always been the case with him, and he just grows more comfortable with that aspect of himself. Um, maybe Jordan just became more comfortable with doing whatever it takes to win. <laughs>